Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna. Welcome to episode 12 of the Mighty Littles Podcast. Today I am talking to Katie. Her son Tim is now five and was born with a giant umphalocele. Hold on to your hats for this podcast. Katie talks even faster than I do. And we are going to cover so many different things. It's just fantastic. She found out that her son had an umphalocele at 18 to 20 weeks um, during their anatomy scan. And she really talks openly about the initial babbling conversation where she first heard his diagnosis. The fear that was involved in in the delivery of that news, the relief that she felt when she got hooked into a high-risk OB practice that knew what they were talking about in a NICU who had experience with babies with giant umphalocele. She talks about how she and her husband had planned to name their baby Colin, but Colin is too close to colon, and so they had to change around his name and what that was like about giving up on the idea of the perfect pregnancy and the perfect shower and the perfect baby and really accepting the journey that they had in front of them. I think you guys will love the way that she talks about developing a communication plan about who and how and why and when you want to share communication with friends and families or that you don't want to share communication. The way she talks about communication with people t- reacting to the news that her son had pneumphalocele between the optimism bullies, the over-empathizers, and the cliche sayers. It's just a fantastic podcast. Hold on to your hats. It's a long one. We talk fast. We laugh a lot. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Katie, welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. Why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself to the Mighty Littles listeners? Great. Thank you, Anna. I'm so honored and thrilled to be with you, too. So my name is Katie Simons-McCarty. I currently live in North Andover, Massachusetts, which is about 45 minutes north of Boston. Um, my accent might come back. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how we'll see how comfortable I feel, Anna. It's I, back. I'm, I'm my <laughs> it's back. I thought so. So um, I grew up in Massachusetts, went to college in Massachusetts, lived in New York City for over 10 years. Um, had a really exciting adventure with my career and things like that um, and found myself in Denver kind of randomly. A girlfriend had moved there, a friend of mine from college. She lived in Boulder and she's like, Katie, this is so great. Get away from New York. New York is just so hard. And I went out to visit her and I'm like, I'm moving here. And I was able to transfer my job and moved out to um, Denver loved being out west loved denver um and yeah um settled down in the denver area and that's where um i had both my boys um tim who's now five and pj which stands for patrick john he's 22 months so both boys are in denver um we moved back to massachusetts the boys and i moved back to massachusetts um just to be closer with family and um you know, most of my professional work actually is, is more back east. So um, here I am back in Massachusetts, but I feel very connected to Colorado. I miss Colorado so much. I miss you, Anna, and, you know, 
Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children and all my friends in Denver too. So it's so good that we're connected in all these different ways. Yeah. Awesome. So um, tell me about, we're just going to kind of jump straight into that 18-week ultrasound. So Tim is your five-year-old and he is the baby that you had that was in the NICU and why you have a NICU experience. Um, And I think a lot of that really started with that 18-week ultrasound. So tell me about that 18-week ultrasound and how you found out about Tim's diagnosis and figured out that you were going to need to be in the NICU and what that felt like. Let's start right there. Perfect. Yes. Um, Yes, my pregnancy was different than a lot of NICU moms, uh, NICU parents, because I knew that my baby, Tim, uh, at the time, he wasn't named or anything like that, but I knew that my baby was going to be a NICU at the 20-week ultrasound. It was the 20-week when we learned that um, there was a rare birth defect. So we went... um, we went into the ultrasound, you know, just thinking it'd be routine, um, update us on a healthy pregnancy. And then it was exciting because the highlight was the gender reveal. So I remember being in that ultrasound. I remember lying on the bed. I remember seeing a screen in front of me and I saw his perfectly round head and 10 fingers and toes appearing on the screen, you know, as the technician was as put working on my belly. But then it got really quiet. And instead of hearing good news, we heard shattering news. Um, In fact, I just got a chill (laughs) as I said that, um, that our baby boy, in this process, and I can't exactly, but it was silent, but in this process, we did learn that he is a boy, um, but simultaneously that there was something wrong. And um, we found out that he had a serious birth defect called an omphalocele. And it's a condition in which the baby's organs grow outside of its body, um, covered by a thin, transparent layer of tissue. Um, An omphalocele can mean that the baby has serious chromosomal or congenital abnormalities, and it also um, could mean death. Um, So not only was this explosive news, um, unfortunately, it was delivered, the news was delivered to us in a mm, somewhat unprofessional way. And that just piled on the the fear and the anger and the grief all all within like, you know, a matter of five minutes. Um, Because, you know, the the sonogram technician and the obstetrician kind of bumbled through it and they were, they were, um, you know, casually mentioning that the practice had never seen an omphalocele before. And this was very well-established practice. And then they were reaching for medical books, all of this in front of us. So it was very, very traumatizing experience. So they vacillated between this like pretty intense medical terminology and then moved over to kind of platitudes. And it was just a really, really difficult um, experience. So at the 20 week mark, that's where we began our NICU journey, which is very different than a lot of families. So from there, there's a lot of like kind of the details of transferring our care. So transferring our care from a regular OBGYN to that um, the high risk practice and things like that. And, and and through that, I also, you know, had to navigate, you know, some of those pregnancy milestones or expectations that I had that 
couldn't do. And one of them actually is a weird one is that we had picked out names, right? So we're, you know, going through the names and things like that. And, and, and we had a girl name that we finally came to, but this baby's not a girl. So we had a boy name, of course. And the boy name that was selected before we knew about the Omphalocele was Colin. So we were going to have Colin. It was Colin. It was Colin. And I remember that night of hearing the Omphalocele news, um, I blurted out to Chris, um, Chris, if, if this kid has stomach issues, we cannot name him Colin because I'll keep on thinking of Colin. <laughs> and it was our, like, it was our only moment of levity, you know, this heavy news. We're breaking the news to our parents. Everyone's wondering why we haven't texted them because we were supposed to, you know, reveal the gender, but you know, the appointment went much longer than we thought and we were shocked and all this stuff. So he's like, yeah, no, I, I totally know what you mean. We cannot name this kid Colin. And so then we started, this is kind of a funny part. So we started Googling for names and, and, and we're Catholic. So I was like, oh, we got to get a saint's name and stuff like that. So we're Googling for the patron saint of medicine and surgery. And we found Erasmus and we thought, oh, Erasmus, Erasmus McCarty. And then we're like, uh, no, we cannot do this to this poor child. So I Googled the patron saint of stomach disorders and that's how we came with the name Timothy. And, you know, Catholics aren't really known for knowing their Bible, but there was one, one verse that I remember, for God gave us not a spirit of cowardice, but one of power, love, and self-control. And that was a letter from Timothy. So we, we decided that that was the name. And so then that just, that was like a shift. All of a sudden, by changing the name, it shifted us. And it also showed that this pregnancy was different. Um, it was a grieving process because I had a feeling of certitude that we'd have this like perfect, I put perfect in quotes. I know this is a podcast, like perfect, healthy, strapping Colin who would be outgoing and happy and smart and athletic. And Colin didn't exist. Colin had this perfect fantasy life and I projected my dreams and aspirations onto him. And then, you know, knowing that he didn't exist, this was a very, this was a big moment of grief. So we had to get rid of all of our expectations about who this baby was and focus on who this baby is and um, who Tim is. And it's not about what we want him to be or what he think he'll be. This is who he is. And so, um, it was really weird because it was like a moment of liberation and beauty, but simultaneously, as I've learned, like you can have two very conflicting feelings at the same time. I was shattered with overwhelming grief that I didn't have this like perfect Colin who I had envisioned. And this baby was not Colin and he would never be Colin. And, um, you know, that, that was like, you know, the other, the other piece of it is I wasn't able to, um, shop, or baby clothes or things like that. Like there were some things like I couldn't do. So I feel like in these weeks leading up to it, and they, they're very fluid because I think with the stages of grief, um, you know, they don't follow that trajectory that we like to think about it. I, you know, I was, I was in um, a little bit of denial, uh, denial. I, I think that stage was rather brief for me, but I was angry and sad. I was very angry and sad that I couldn't have an innocent, joyous pregnancy, quote, like everyone else, you know, like everyone else. I was angry because I was having my first baby. Uh, let's see, I was 36 when I was pregnant. So I was pissed, you know, like 
I covered for everyone's maternity leaves. I've, you know, I've gone to countless baby showers and it like, it felt like it was my turn. And, and, and now I'm going through this devastating process and I couldn't really have that pregnancy that I thought I was going to have, or I dreamed of just like that imaginary Colin. So like, it was weird because I wasn't in denial about Tim's birth defect. There wasn't wishful thinking that the omphalocele didn't exist or that it would magically go away. Like I didn't have any of that, but subconsciously I started keeping a scorecard of like our trauma. Cause it was a trauma, like finding this news. Now I can look at it. He's Tim's five years old. Like at the time I wouldn't have been like, Oh, that's trauma. You're being so dramatic, but it was, it was a trauma. And I was in the middle of it and I didn't know any better, but it was. And so like in this like scorecard, I'm like in the bad column, we received this horrible ultrasound with, with news about an unhealthy baby. Um, we had to perform an amnio on the spot because it was 20 weeks. I would do it again. I, it was the right decision to make for us, but it was very traumatic because it's an invasive procedure. And it was also um, finding out news that potentially could be very devastating for our child's life. And I don't know I wanted if I wanted to hear that news. And that's not for like being in denial, but it wouldn't have changed our outcome with continuing the pregnancy. The pregnancy would have continued. So I sort of thought, what's the point of having an amnio? But I'm glad we did. Um, you know, we, we it made us be more centered. And I, I'm glad we did it. But and I think the- what's, what's interesting about the story that you're telling is that you got all that information while you were still pregnant and you got a chance to grieve the loss of what you thought was going to happen before you actually entered into your NICU journey. Whereas, and I'm not saying that it was a completed process um, by the time you entered into the NICU, but it had started and you'd had a chance to sit with that grief and reconcile it and say goodbye to perfect Colin and say hello to Tim all before you actually gave birth. And I think for moms that don't know their NICU stay is coming, they are doing that at the same time that they're scared to death in those first couple of days in the NICU and they're recovering from a birth, either a C-section or a vaginal delivery or a transport or something else that's traumatic. And so I'm curious, my, my two questions about this process are, um, one, how long between when your OB kind of stumbled through the diagnosis and when you saw the high-risk doctors, how long did that take? And were you any more at peace when you saw the the high risk doctors? Um, and how did you process through all of that while you were pregnant? Like, you, I mean, you talked a little bit about it in terms of you didn't buy baby clothes. You felt a little bit resentful because you'd covered other people's maternity leaves. And, hey, this was my turn and it was supposed to be good. And those are all so valid and so... I mean, you so perfectly describe what almost everybody is feeling and they just can't put words to it. So how long between when you saw your OB and when you saw the high-risk doctors 
did that change how you felt about anything? And then how did you really work on processing through that while still being pregnant? Because you had to process through it while you were still carrying him. Uh, yes, absolutely. No, you you summarized it perfectly. So the the time between the bumbling, challenging ultrasound and going to the high risk practice was one day, Perfect. less than twenty four hours. One day, and in fact, they wanted to get us there within like that day. So I think the ultrasound was at like three. And they wanted, if they could, to squeeze us into an appointment, but we weren't able to do that. So we had the appointment the following day, first thing in the morning. And um, it's so funny you ask that question because it's like everything changed once we were in the high risk track for the better. So whereas, and I'm just using the word regular, I don't like the word regular, but like a regular OBGYN, like they don't handle this. They don't see this. Whereas the high risk practice, that's their, that's their wheelhouse. That's that they see this every day. And in fact, Dr. Lindsay, who was the first doctor of that practice of obstetrics, he was like, we do this every day. We see them fallow seals every day. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and, and my mom's friend who was a NICU nurse years ago at, I think Boston Children's, she's in the Boston area. So I think she was at Boston Children's. She said, Katie, these happen and they're not necessarily it could be an isolated physical issue, like an omphalocele. So not to get in the weeds with the birth defect, because it's more the overarching piece of this, but she's like, he, he he's going to be okay. You, you have to get on the right track. And that's what it felt like. Like we were not in the right track. And then once we got on that track, everything about their office was different. So the first office was like, it, it's hard to explain, like bustling. It was very vibrant. And that's a good thing. Like it was very brightly colored. There were a lot of people. There was a buzz in the office. When I went to the high risk pra practice, it was really quiet. And that was good. I didn't want bustling. I didn't want active. I wanted, I was going through a trauma. I wanted calm. I wanted peacefulness. And I like, as you can probably tell on the phone, like I like, I love, I'm an extrovert. I love to be out and about, blah, 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 blah. But everything changed in that moment. Like I needed quiet. I need calm. I need a centeredness. And that's what being on that track was like that. And it was night and day having the ultrasound. So we had an anatomy scan, which is quite long. Like, um, and you could talk about kind of Maybe I'll let you fill in about like what that entails. But all I remember it takes is that almost an hour or longer. Yes. And they it took longer than an hour. Yeah. They literally look at everything from the top of the head to the bottom of the toes. And so everything gets looked at and measured in really significant detail. Whereas for the typical 20 week ultrasound, they're kind of like looking at the head. Yeah, it's there. Yep. Looking at the heart, there's four chambers. Um, looking at the belly and looking to see if it's a boy or a girl. Most people go into that 18 to 20 week ultrasound with the expectation of I'm going to find out if I'm having a boy or girl. Neonatologists go into that 20 week ultrasound with five items on their list. And I remember telling the ultrasound tech, both babies, these five things. And then you can do whatever it is else you need to do. But you have to do those five things for me first because I, I need to know. Yes. Um, literally, the top of the head to the bottom of the toes gets measured in detail. 
every single thing. It's just a much more in-depth scan. Yes, yes. And and that's it. Ours, it was over an hour. It was uh, over an hour long. And again, it was so, what was so interesting about it was there was such a contrast, right? So the first ultrasound the day prior was just very disorganized, chaotic, um, not the right words, everything like that. Whereas this one was very calm. The ultrasound tech um, set the expectation. If I'm not speaking, it's not that there's anything wrong. It's that I this is a very detailed procedure and I really have to focus. So that's what's going to happen. If I pause on something that doesn't have any meaning and she really walked through how we could um, envision and expect the anatomy scan to go. And so what that did was it, it, it was just a very calming process. So she really took her time with everything. And, and I remember, I recall that from the bottom of his toes to the top of his head, you know, all the chambers of the heart, she looked at everything in great detail. I remember she looked at the heart in great, great detail. And so then after that, um, Dr. Lindsay came in and he in- introduced himself and he had encouraged us to do the amnio. And I was very opposed to it. I, I, I really didn't have time to research this. Like, and maybe that's a blessing. I knew it was invasive, but I didn't really understand it. Right. And I had gone into the appointment being like, I'm not doing one. It's not going to change the outcome. Um, we are continuing with this pregnancy, whatever we find out. An amnio is an amniocentesis, which is where they take a needle and put it through mom's skin into mom's uterus to hit a pocket of fluid, of amniotic fluid. That's where the name comes from. Um, amnio and then centesis is where you're sampling part of that fluid. So you take this long needle you put it in, you get a sample of the fluid to take out, and that allows you to send testing to see if there are any chromosomal anomalies that you can see. And so when you have a baby that has an umphalocele, umphalocele can just be a, a one-off, like this just didn't go back in the way it was supposed to, but everything else about the baby is normal. But umphalocele can also be associated with other genetic conditions, um, such as Beckwith-Wiedemann, where you have multiple problems with multiple organs, or your your heart and your kidneys can also be affected. So that's why that's what an amniocentesis is, and that's what they're looking for. And for most people, there's two reasons to do it. The first is, are you going to make a decision about your pregnancy one way or another? Mm-hmm. But for you guys, where the the decision about the pregnancy wasn't in question, I think the amniocentesis also gives you information that's helpful for expectations for once the baby is born. So it's not just for decision making. It's also for setting you up for what to expect when your baby arrives. That's exactly what Dr. Lindsay said. And he said exactly that. He said, you, you know, I know I just met you all, but I can feel it that you need to know because the entire pregnancy will cause more anxiety. And I mean, again, the decision had to be made on the spot. We didn't have any wiggle room because you cannot do an amnio after 20 weeks. So I said, could I sleep on it? And he said, no. <laughs> and and I appreciated it. I appreciated the candor. I appreciated the swagger. I mean, really, I did that. You know, um, he is a professional. He does this every day. I 
I am not. And I really, I really appreciated the honesty, the direction, the guidance. And so we decided to proceed. And yeah. And so then we, they said that it was going to take three weeks, but I found out, oh gosh, I think within 10 days. And what we found out was excellent news. And that's kind of where things shifted, right? And they shift so fast, right? So a week and a half prior, we heard this devastating, very difficult news. And then 10 days later, we get our amnio results back and it's good news. There's no chromosomal um, abnormalities. Um, It looks like, from what they can tell, an isolated physical thing. That's how we're going to look at it. And I'm going to proceed with, you know, the, the high risk practice. I have more ultrasounds than the regular person. And then in the last trimester, I have the non-stress test. I'm going to give you that segue to tell people what those are. <laughs> so so a non-stress test is where you go in and they hook you up to the monitors and they're looking for certain things that the baby does in terms of what the heart rate looks like and does is the baseline good? Does it have variability, meaning that the heart rate goes up and down and you want accelerations where the heart rate goes up and then it comes back down to baseline. So that's what a non-stress test is. Yes. And, and you know, here's the crazy thing was once, now, again, I look back on it. Tim's five now. Everything happened so fast, right? So like 20 weeks, then like a week and a half later, we hear this news. And and there is that kind of period in between, you know, that second, the, the second trimester was a lot of processing, uh, uh, you know, telling people the news, things like that, which is a whole other thing, right? And again, to your point about people having to navigate this on the fly in NICU, we had a little space because this sounds very um, cold isn't the right word, but NICU parents have to actually think of a communication plan, like a marketing plan to figure out how are they going to communicate this news? When are they going to communicate it? How much are they going to tell people? How much are they not going to tell? Are they going to text people all day long? Are they going to post things on Facebook and, and Instagram? It's a thing. Like, it's a big thing. And we had a little space with that about deciding how we were going to reveal our news. How are we going to tell people? And we, you know, again, it's not the oppression Olympics where, you know, who has it tougher. But sometimes I feel like moms who don't know about NICU have it tougher. Like it's shattering news to find out about a birth defect. And like, I've been pregnant a second time with PJ and oh my God, like, I I hate to say this. It was so easy. It just, it was so different. Right. And when you have a NICU baby, it's like, like, oh man, it's rough. Right. So that communication plan, all that sort of stuff. So we had to like, think of all that. And so then in the third trimester, actually, this is a funny story with you, Anna. So, Anna, we met you, when did we meet you? In the second trimester, because we we knew that we'd be at Rocky Mountain Hospital for children. And we just fell in love with the hospital. Like, I mean, you know, part of it is you're selecting the place that feels right and has the medical expertise and professionalism, but also feels right. And and Rocky Mountain just felt right. Like, Like, within walking in, it's like, oh, wow. So we met you and we talked a little bit and we met, um, it was a, a Megan Lee was, is the hospital coordinator who like got us on a NICU tour. We got to meet you. We got to meet Dr. Rothenberg, the surgeon, our surgeon. And we met a couple of NICU nurses and so on. And I remember when we talked to you, we were just relieved like, oh my gosh, she's brilliant. 
and she's so warm and loving and like, gosh, this this is this might not be so bad. Like you know, <laughs> those I mean? are all like, very nice things to say. No, for <laughs> real. And you're redhead like me, so I was like, oh my god, this is so great. And then you know, you know, and and we met Dr. Rothenberg. We asked him about the time frame, and this is my joke is like he told us like, oh, it'll easy breezy. He'll be a NICU for like three days. Now, what's funny is we didn't ask you, right? So fast forward, the third trimester, I'm having like kind of a panic attack. Like everything's like pretty like calm and like stuff like that, like, you know, as well as it could be. And I'm like, Chris, we need to go back to Rocky Mountain because I didn't even ask how long like we'll be in NICU. Like I, I, I don't even, how did I not ask that question? Like seriously, I think I, I think subconsciously though, I was living day by day and, and now living in COVID, like I get it when you're walking in trauma, you cannot get too far ahead. Like you, you can't like right now we are living in it. You cannot think more than an hour ahead, a day ahead. And that's how it is when you hear very challenging news, very, very devastating news. So I said, all right, so we had a meeting with you and you guys, so Tim was due on January 12th. Well, actually January 19th, but we had to go a week early. And we're like, Anna, how long do you think he'll be in NICU? And you're like, I wouldn't be surprised if you're here till the 4th of July. And I remember, so 4th of July, wait, Anna, I said January. And you're like, no, I, I heard you. <laughs> and I went, I'm not going to swear in your podcast, but like, you know, my, my response wasn't very, um, it, it was a, you know, uh, yeah. It, yeah. There were some expletives in it. <laughs> there were some expletives. And I went, oh my God, but it didn't shock me. Like, like, of course it's going to take a long time. His organs are outside of his body. This is a tiny baby with his organs outside of his body. Like this transforms your life when you have a NICU baby, right? Like I had this plan. This goes back to like the Colin plan. Like we already had a daycare lined up. He was going to be in daycare and I, you know, I'm a working mom and blah, 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 blah. My dad said, I hope you have enough savings because you might have to stay home with this child. It's a very unique situation. We need to plan for a lot of different things as a family, right? So, I mean, that that's a jarring thought. Oh, my gosh, like financially, how are we going to do this? I mean, there's so many layers to this. Again, it's a lot like what's hard for right now with COVID happening is my trauma is triggered. Like a lot of these things that I ha- happen to me in NICU, it hits to everything. So it feels very present even right now how people – worry about their jobs and things like that. Like that's how it feels when you hear news like this. So anyway, we heard six to nine months. We went home and it was very calm until he was delivered. I'm not a big like, oh, everything happens for a reason person. I'm not like that. Like sometimes I do think you receive the information that you can when it feels right. Like I wasn't ready to hear six to nine months when I just heard the news. Like I, I that was a duration that I could not fathom. But as we got closer to the birth, it was really important that I heard that so I could prepare. Well, and I think that's that denial phase of grief. Yes. The the reason that that, you know, if you if you think about it, denial is there so that you can process what's coming at you at a speed that feels comfortable to you. And so you stay in denial until you're ready to be able to process it. It helps slow the flood of grief that's coming at you. I actually wrote a piece about grief in the NICU and how it's not just important, but essential for moms to acknowledge what they wanted and acknowledge 
what they don't have and say, I'm really grieving the fact that I didn't get what whatever it is that's important. You know, everybody has different things that are important to them. I didn't get my natural birth. I didn't get a vaginal delivery. I didn't get my baby shower. I didn't get to deliver in my hometown. I didn't get to have my kids come and meet my baby because it's cold and flu season and the NICU's locked down, right? Like, so there's all these different things that happen when you have a baby in the NICU. And it's not just important for parents to acknowledge that, but it's essential that they acknowledge it and move through it because otherwise you get stuck and then you can't you cannot move forward and and recognize and appreciate and feel the good things that are happening because you're stuck in the grief and so anyway there's a there's a big blog post about it we as neonatologists have a kind of a joke parents with umphaliceles and um, gastroschisis which is another congenital defect where the bowel is outside the body but not covered by a membrane and for different reasons um you know the surgeons say well we put it back in and the baby eats and they go home and then parents come and meet with us and i'm like well yes technically that's true however sometimes (laughs) we put the bowel back in and the baby eats in two weeks and they go home and other times it takes us a while particularly with very large umphalocels which is how tim's was described in utero it takes a while for the bowel to go back in and then we sit and we wait and that waiting process can take a long time because the bowel was swimming in fluid or might have um, an atresia where it doesn't connect to itself or might have some inherent swelling that makes it not move really well. And, you know, I've had gastroschisis babies go home in 10 days, and I've had gastroschisis babies that stay for nine months. And I've had, you know, tiny umphalocele babies that go home at five days. And I've had giant umphalocele babies who get transferred and end up with a tracheostomy and very special detailed surgeries because it the defect is so giant. And it's really hard to tell parents on the front end, well, I mean, if you're lucky, you'll be here for a month. And yep. if you're not, you're going to be here for a year, right? So you kind of split the difference and say, you know, you it, you could be here for up to six months. You should be prepared for that. And then if you go home before that, then you're ecstatic. But if I tell you you'll be here for two months and you go home in six, now you're just mad at me for from month two to month six. Like, why did this happen? So it, it is really hard to give parents a good idea about what to expect until the baby is out. And we actually see what's happening and we kind of get a little bit ways through it. No, that's exactly what it was. And that's what ended up happening in our story is that Tim came home at two months and we were like, what? We're not ready. I mean, like legit, like, like we didn't have a baby shower. I couldn't bring myself to buy baby gifts or presents or clothes. I I literally like bare minimum, like not ready to bring a baby home. We had put stuff like on our Amazon shopping carts, like it was waiting there, but it was like, oh my gosh, like we were afraid to press the button. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, Yeah, absolutely. And um, had to buy a nursery in like a day, like a crib, a mattress. I mean, even though they're not even, the, they're not even in that, but like whatever, like just what felt like, wow, he's coming home. And that's exactly what happened is that his, his recovery was much swifter. That being said, he had more complications outside of NICU than in NICU. 
So why don't we why don't we back up right there? Yeah. Because his NICU course actually was not it, it wasn't bad at all. Why don't we talk about his from your perspective? Um, can just kind of talk about when he was born, the kind of the first time you got to see him, and then how the NICU course went. Yes, yes. So it's 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 interesting because Tim is five. So my perspective is very different um, because I'm a NICU mom. I um, have a community of fellow NICU moms. So, and our experiences are all very, very different. So it sort of gives you a little bit more perspective about where you fit, right? And where we fit in the great scheme of things, though, again, while we were living through it, it did not feel that way, right? It didn't feel that way. Although mine was different, I was prepared. I mean, people used to always say this to me. You probably saw this too. Every day I was dressed up for NICU. Like I, I had my hair done. I, I was wearing like my maternity clothes that were my work maternity clothes, but I had all that time to prepare. Like I was preparing for this for four months prior. So I wasn't, um, like I wasn't experiencing that grief. Like this was a whole different journey right and I even split it up my pregnancy journey was just so unique not better not worse it was just very different than I would say any mom I know and but then my NICU experience was different than other NICU moms because I wasn't traumatized at the time of birth so I really fell into this really weird place because people are like oh you were so lucky but you weren't and it's and I feel like that too like I just I'm it's a very unique situation so if there's listeners in that situation I feel you because there's not a lot of people in that situation it's, it's really weird so um when we when I had Tim I remember um that the delivery was very planned it was very calm. I remember the room was deadly silent, even though there were so many people in it because we had given um, permission to have like students in there and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted people in there. I wanted people to learn more about seals, people to help. I, I don't know, whatever. It didn't make a big deal to me. Like I thought that's fine. So, you know, here you have um, these really brilliant people all in a room, yet I could feel the calm, the tension and nervous energy of these really smart people who are trained to be very calm, being very disciplined to maintain composure and calm in this intense event of having this super high risk baby. So it, it, it sort of made me a little more nervous. Like, you know what I mean? Because everyone was super disciplined. And so on I remember someone gave me this rumor that a C-section takes five minutes, right? So oh. C-section takes five minutes and it doesn't take five minutes. Even with PJ, my second baby, it doesn't take five minutes. But by contrast, I do want to contrast it. PJ was born on July 3rd. So it was summer baby and PJ was, uh, Tim was January 12th. Tim's experience was very, you know, intense and, 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 um, you know, like I was just describing. And then PJ's is the day before 4th of July, um, like everyone's sort of on vacation. I walk myself into the OR, whereas, whereas with Tim, I'm on like a gurney and, you know, I basically pass out from all the, the, the IVs and stuff like that. They have me walking in on a pole. Music is playing. They're talking about their weekends and I'm about to deliver a baby. Whereas with Tim, it was not like that. It was very serious. 
So anyway, on the C-section, I thought it was only going to take five minutes. And all of a sudden on the 34th minute, and I, oh, this is a great story. I was panicking, right? Like, I'm just like, oh my God, what this is, why isn't he, why don't I hear a cry? And there's all these people in the room and, you know, I'm looking, they have a clock. There's a clock on my left. And I keep looking over on my left and I'm like, oh God, I'm staring at a clock. This is miserable. And the time is ticking and blah, blah, blah. And so all of a sudden, I don't want to cry when I say this. I smelled um, beautiful perfume by Estee Lauder, very specific. And I turned to the assist assistant to the anesthesiologist and I said, I, I, I think her name's Joanne. I said, Joanne, are you wearing perfume? Like, are you wearing beautiful by Estee Lauder? She's like, Katie, we are in the OR. Like, and I'm like being familiar with her. Like I know her, but I'm all loopy on the drugs. And she's being familiar with me back. She's like, no, how would I be wearing perfume? My um, grandmother who had passed away a year prior, that was her perfume. And I swear she was in the room with me. I swear she was. And I just, I remember like it being like a wave of peace. Like I was like, everything's going to be okay. Like I needed that. Like, I, and I believe in God and I, my faith is a big part of me. And I was like, she's here with me in that room. So um, then on the 34th minute of my C-section, finally I hear him cry and he roared and I, I, oh, the relief I felt. And now you guys had all prepared me that it was most likely that he would have to be whisked, whisked away to surgery. So I, again, had the expectation that I wouldn't see my baby in that moment. And everyone, when they hear that, they're like, Katie, that's horrible. And how did, and I said, no. You don't understand for five months I've been preparing for me. And like, I, I'm not like mother of the year and I'm not trying to be like, you know, this like saint or something like this. But I like when I was in pregnancy, I realized how selfless you have to be as a parent. And I got that lesson very early. It was like, it wasn't about me seeing him. It was about him. Like, what does he need? Like if he needs to go to surgery right away, he's got to go to surgery. Like, this isn't about like me having this special Kodak moment. Like we've got to, you know, fulfill his needs literally. And so it's like, I felt like I become a, became a parent like, like sooner, right? Like I had to deal with a lot of the crap that my friends are dealing with now. Like I've dealt with a lot of stuff as a parent that people are dealing with as, as they get older and it just, it's different. So anyway, it's super I, interesting to me that was your takeaway because I know that when I do consults, I always tell parents, don't worry, you will get to see your baby before we leave the room. And so you had given me some of your stuff to read. And so um, Katie's working on a, a book and a memoir, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, she had given me some of the sections to read. And I remember reading that in your book that you got a chance to see Tim and that you were prepared and had this expectation that he would be whisked away. And I I was like, I just felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. And it, it, it so it kind of, it was one of those like, dang it, I try so hard to make sure moms know that we are not going to race out of the delivery room with their baby. And either I didn't say it or... I said it, but it got mixed in with all of the your baby likely needs surgery in the first 24 hours that then imprinted in your mind that your baby was going to get whisked away. So after I read your memoir, I was like, note to self, 
make sure that you drive this point home because even though in my mind oh yeah I was like I always say don't worry you're gonna get to see your baby you might not get to hold your baby but we'll make sure you see your baby before we leave with very few exceptions there there are a few exceptions for kids with airway anomalies where that's just not possible. We have to go to the other room. We have a whole OR set up. It might be this special thing called an exit procedure, which is neither here nor there for this podcast. But I think most NICUs, at least I I shouldn't say that, for us, it is so important for moms to get to see their baby in the NICU that I felt horrible when I read that in your memoir because I was like, I'm the one that did that consult. So it was me that set you up to think that. Was it though? I, I don't I know. Can, you know, I was able to take the news and deal with it and, and, and sort of give it a little bit of a silver lining and I'm not a silver lining person, but um, I do think moms, they have to see their kids. So it's, it's, Hey, this is good that, that it's, an extra point to drive home and so but what happened in reality was that he was they he was with me and I remember just being like oh he's going to surgery and we had planned for Chris to go with him and and that was fine I mean that that was what we needed to do that this was the plan and so what was again so I had that like moment of um my grandmother and that felt like a sign like that felt like a like a very comforting feeling and then all of a sudden when they put Tim on me he's this slimy redheaded alien looking you know newborns let let let's be a little honest here they're they're not exactly like what they look like when they're 6 months old so you know tears are streaming down my face i'm happy and relieved and i look down at him and no he still has big ears he had the biggest ears i've ever seen here i am like I'm not even worried about his own fallacy. I'm like, oh my God, look at those ears. And I remember thinking, if I'm thinking that, that's good. Because that that's, you know, that could be another sign. That's God telling me you're laughing. That's really good. I mean, here's this beautiful moment. I don't even think I'm going to see my son. I'm like, oh my God, those ears. And I was like fixated on them. I'm like, those ears, they're so big. Oh my God, who has big ears in our family? He still has big ears, I'm telling you. So anyway. That was him. That was Tim. Like, this was not Colin. This was Tim, 100% Timothy. And um, it was such a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And so I was able to see him. Um, I really, everything was a blur after that. Like, I don't remember getting to my room. I knew that he had to get looked at. Um, but there was like this kind of black hole of, I can't really remember. Um, but I do have one very difficult moment that I had on the maternity floor. And I wrote about this in a lot of detail and it kind of really, it, it, for me, it sort of sums up how Nikki was traumatizing because I had the, the traumatizing pregnancy journey, but this kind of fits in with, I think what most NICU moms have and it comes in different flavors so it might not have the exact logistics of what I went through but it has this kind of underlying universal theme so I'm up on the maternity floor and this is crazy it sounds like I'm making it up but on January 12th it was a Monday so it was he was a plan c-section on Monday 2015 and I literally was the only person on the floor and I'm not using literally you know like I mean it like 
the word actually is intended to be me. I was the only one. I was the only one on the floor. And I was like, I was doted on and everyone was like, kept on coming to my room. And I'm like, wow, they're so nice to NICU parents. And so finally I asked a nurse, I'm like, why are you giving me so much attention? Like, I like it. But she's like, you're the only one here. I said, oh my God, this is awesome. The next day on the 13th, the floor was like filled to capacity. That's just how it is, right? So people are having babies on the 13th. They're not on the 12th, whatever. So the 13th, it was filled to the max, right? And, um, you know, I'm like wheeling down to the NICU. And at the time, the NICU was very far away. I, I know that they they moved everything around and, and the new maternity ward is closer. But is that what they call it? Maternity ward? They don't call it that. They call it maternity. mom baby. The mom baby. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds like I'm like trapped in the 70s. Anyway, so the mom baby floor. And so like now, like but back. But like when I was there, it was it was far away. So I would get wheeled in the morning and blah, blah, blah. So all of a sudden, I'm like so naive. I, I, I didn't ask how like regular births are. I didn't realize that the babies were in the room with their mom. I thought it was like the movies where they're all in a big nursery. I, I sound so silly saying that, but that's how I thought it was. So I remember hearing all the babies like, when I took a nap or when I went, you know, went to bed at night and I'm like, Oh my God, this is awful. Like this, this, this is just awful. They're with their babies. And so I had a C-section. So I was encouraged to walk around the floor with my pole just to get it moving, get things moving. And so I finally shuffled out and it was tough because emotionally I was drained. I was relieved. I had like every feeling I was postpartum. I, you know, it's not a good, state of mind like it's just but I was like all right I'm gonna get up I'm gonna walk around and I must have gone like not even halfway around the floor and all of a sudden this woman is like hey Katie I look up I have no idea who she is I'm like hi and she's like hi how are you it's Jessica from the baby 101 class I'm like still not registering I'm like who is this person right and that was another thing I don't know why we had to take a class like that because it was like I don't know we we weren't bringing a baby home right away and we knew we weren't like I I think that policy shifted but anyway we were in that class turns out I met one of my now best friends in that class so it all it's all good but like at the time it felt like why am I going to this class and so she's like oh my god and and I looked down so she's like walking around like a champion because she had a natural birth and, and, you know, some people don't rebound as well, but she rebounded very well. And she's pushing a little bassinet with a perfect baby girl. Perfect. Beautiful. The little bow shaped mouth or heart shaped mouth with the, 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 um, the bow that they put on after the baby's born and I couldn't stop staring. I, I, I just couldn't. And the one thing I kept thinking is, you can actually see her baby's face. She's not covered in tubes and wires. And my baby is. And this sucks. And but I, But I didn't feel that in the moment. I was fascinated. Like, I was fascinated by this. And so then I found out the baby's name was Vivi, and she was beautiful, and I was very gracious in the moment. I did not make it around the floor. I just quickly shuffled to my room, and I lost it. I mean, lost it. Like, like ugly cry, sobbing, couldn't control it. 
and I know the walls are thin. I mean, I just, but I couldn't, I couldn't control it. And I just, I was like, like, I wasn't jealous of her. Like, cause I've experienced jealousy and I don't like jealousy, but like jealousy happens. It wasn't that, like, it was weird. It was more of like, oh my God, that is so easy. Like, like that is so easy. She just like had a baby <laughs> and she's going home. I mean, and I have a baby who is struggling to stay alive and I am struggling mentally to be the strongest mom I can be because I have to be his cheerleader and I love him so much and like I can't have this like natural euphoria it's got to be this like you're a fighter and that's bullshit because he's a baby. Like, why does my baby have to be a fighter? Like, that's crap. Like I was really pissed. I was really pissed. And I just thought to myself, and, and I never, I always kept, once I got on that high risk track, like once I got on that track, I didn't, I kept my blinders on. I really did. I kept my blinders on. And that was the moment my blinders were off. And it was a devastating moment. Like it was, it felt like my world just collapsed, you know? And, um, a nurse came in and she was amazing. I can't remember her name, but she just sat there with me and held me for over an hour. Like she had other stuff to do. She had other patients to be with. And she just sat with me and she shared to me a pregnancy loss she had. And, and she didn't do it in a way that was like, you know how like when people like over empathize or they try to empathize too much, like it was totally perfect. Like that's one thing I learned from my journey is like, like listen to people's journey. Don't, oh, that happened to me. Like, even if it did, like, I, I, I really try not to do that because it's not the same. It's never the same. So anyway, she was amazing. And so, um, I had that moment and, and that it stays with me now. I got to experience a healthy baby and it was easier. I mean, there's no sugarcoating it. Having a healthy baby is easier, um, on every level and, and it's okay. Like I felt guilty about that for a while. And when I found out PJ was healthy, I remember it was in the same place. It was the same place where I got the anatomy scam. I got an anatomy scam for, for um, Tim, uh, for PJ too. Just, they did it to be on the safe side. And um, I, it was one of, oh God, I can't remember her name. It's just escaping me right now. But it was someone in the, um, in Megan's group. Oh, it's escaping me. Anyway, um, she saw me on the floor and I, I must've had a look on my face. And I said, I think I need to sit down. She's like, did you hear bad news? And I said, no, I heard good news. And she goes, you have survivor guilt. You, you have guilt, you know? So, um, I, I had to process that in a different way. So I've, I've, I've seen both sides of it. So, but that was a really hard moment. It was really hard. And I feel like every NICU mom has that experience with something. It, it, it happens and you break and I broke um, but I had to, I had to break. It was going to happen. It, and, and it was okay. After that, it didn't make the hurt go away or anything like that. I got back on track, but it, I broke. It was hard. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it, it's, it's right there in front of you, right? It's not this imaginary, what I could have had. It's, you are staring at somebody who is in your birthing class with their yes. baby on the floor. This is this is what it was supposed to be. And there's no it, and there's no denying it. Like 
it's standing right in front of you. It's in your face. You can't, you can't sidestep it. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend that it's not there. And it that is the perfect trigger to say, here, let me burst your bubble um, and, ha- and have you crashing down. But that, even, even though you come crashing down, it allows you then to move forward, which I think is, is huge. It did. It, it did. It enabled me. And it also enabled me not to compare myself to others. And I think that these are, again, I'm, it's five years out. I think these are major transformations that I had. And I think, again, it kind of, it feels a lot like we're going through right now, how everyone's like, you know, there's a new normal. Like I transformed to a new normal. Like my life is my life. Like I cannot compare it to the girl next to me and her baby. And that's a huge, like, like it, it seems so obvious, but like when you, when you get hit over the head with it, it really does stay with you. So, um, it transformed me. And I think for the better, I think it, you know, I felt real pain and suffering in that moment and I allowed myself to feel it. And then I could, like I, like you had mentioned earlier, I wasn't stuck it enabled me to move. Right. So, so yeah. So then what happened was Tim was in NICU and, um, everything happened really fast in terms of his acute care. And so, um, again, not to get in the weeds with the medical stuff because, um, I, I still don't even understand all of it, but they were basically putting the organs back inside his body little by little. And that's a perfect uh, description. Right? Yeah. So they yeah, put perfect they put description. Back in. They put everything back in. And uh, a week later, exactly seven days, they said, we're ready to do, we're ready to close them up. We're ready for closure surgery. Now, we thought this was going to be a couple weeks away, but Tim is a strong boy. Like, I mean, I have to step back from it, and he is my son. And he is a tough kid. He's a fighter. So fast forward to being a five-year-old, he's, he's a bit on the smaller size, um, which, you know, we're big people. So like, he's a little bit smaller, really thin. And let me tell you, I'd pick him in a fight over anyone. And not that we're fighters, but he's just, he's, he's, he loves sports. He loves hockey. He's very aggressive. He's the sweetest boy, but like he has that piece of him that's very intense, very driven. And so, cause he had a giant on fallaciel. It was huge. So it was, you know, he, so a week later they have to like put everything back in and it was a pretty major surgery. And I became very close with our primary NICU nurse, Jill. So we, I loved her, I adored her. And so she was like, Katie, this is like, they, this really was a situation where Dr. Rothenberg, like, like we had to get him to surgery and stuff like that. And she came early and moved all the tubes and wires so I could hold him. And, um, I did not expect that moment. And again, I experienced all these conflicting feelings at once. Like, oh my gosh, like this is the best feeling I've ever had. I feel connected to him. I feel love. I feel peace. But I also fear, feel fear. I feel grief that he's a week old. Like, you know, this is crazy. And, and I feel sadness and I felt very scared to get attached to him because this was a, a major surgery. Like this, this was a, this was a big, 
a big deal. I, again, I, I didn't, I was in denial. I don't think I understood it and that's okay. And so then I did, and then he did surgery. We went out to lunch and within an hour he was, he was back. So, so, so we were in a queue and then we got, um, we graduated, we graduated at the month mark around there. And I remember, um, this is a huge milestone. This is amazing, but I was scared. I, I had become, um, comfortable in the acute care and the critical care. Everything happened fast. Um, there was an intensity to it again. I don't know if that's because I'm a Northeasterner. Like I felt like there was progress. There was milestones. Things were happening. Like things were because when we went into the step down, Oh my God, it was brutal. Everything took forever. Like it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. Isn't even the word for it. Like I, I, it felt like we were going backwards with time. Like it, everything was so slow. And, um, that's like the feeding and growing. You need the patience of a saint. So it was really weird. I really liked the acute care. I, I liked the speed of it. I liked that you saw results. It scared the crap out of me half the time because it's really high risk stuff, but things happen fast. So it was really weird. So I'm like, why, like, why am I attached to this? But I think it might be, I've learned so much about like trauma. It could be that my nervous system was like operating on like like mega drive. Do you know what I mean? And to go into that comforting environment, like I was crashing, right? Like my body, like I did, I wasn't breathing. I wasn't like, you know what I mean? Like that, like take a yoga breath, like take, I couldn't, like, I was like, I can't breathe. Like we got to keep it moving, you know? So sorry to interrupt. I think no, no. for kids that have GI surgeries, there is very much this hurry up at the beginning. We need to do surgery. We need to get the bowel back in. We've got to deal with the lungs because as we push the bowel back into the belly, it kind of compresses the lungs and we need to use ventilators to push back. And you've got surgeons and you've got things that are pushing it back in and you've got pain control and you have sedation and there's all these things that are happening. And then, you know, so it's kind of like this hurry up. And then the the next phase is that you've got the recovery, right? So you can see that he's getting better. He doesn't need as much medicine. He comes off the ventilator. We're making progress. And then it, there's this stall that yep. is painfully brutal. And it it is. It is the biggest test of patience any parent can have. So it is kind of this hurry up and wait. And there isn't anything that you or the nurses or I can do to make that bowel wake up and want to move faster and make him want to eat and figure out how to eat and grow all at the same time. And so I think there is kind of this let down almost, right? So your emotions are really, really high. All these things are getting accomplished. And then, oh, well, now we're just waiting. So there's the, there is this kind of letdown. And you just have to take deep breaths and pause through it and know that it doesn't last forever. And there's a double part to it. There's like this other layer. And I called it bottle torture. But it's not about the bottle, right? It's not about the process. It's that my child has to learn instinctual things. And that crushed me. I actually didn't have a lot of grief about breastfeeding. I, I don't know. It didn't, I never really 
by contrast, I can't even believe this. PJ's 22 months. I still breastfeed him, <laughs> but like, like it's awesome. I love breastfeeding. I, I love it. Like I, I had no idea. I had no expe- expectation for PJ. Like I was just like, whatever, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And he just like, like it was so easy. And and I don't say that to sound like, uh, like my life is easy because I know women really struggle with this. So please don't interpret that it is that, but like PJ was really easy. Like he was able to latch. I was able to produce. It just worked. I, I don't know. I mean, I had no expectation. It just was what it was. But with Tim, it didn't work at all. Like I remember again, a, a big part of my journey, Anna, you were there with me by my side. Like I was up all night, like waking myself up in the middle of the night, trying to pump. And I got like this much, like not even like two ounces. Right. And I remember you were like, you saw like you must have seen it. I was putting the like the little things in the fridge and you were like, Hey Katie, like how long have you been doing this? Or like, what is this from like the whole night or whatever? Like you asked a very like, like innocent question. I was like, Oh yeah, that's from like the past like 24 hours. And it was like this much. And I'd been pumping a lot. Right. And you were like, Katie, no, like you need sleep. Like you need to this, it, it, and it, I had no grief with it. It was like, thank you. Thank you. I'm done with this because I hated pumping. I hated it. It felt weird. It felt like I I disliked it a lot. Right. Um, But then when I was at the level two, I was so sad about that whole feeding thing. But I didn't know what it was because I had never breastfed before. I didn't have an expectation of it. But the fact that I can't feed my child in whatever form that it is, was just really hard. Right. And I had that moment and I grieved that moment. And that was really, really tough because, um, like I also have, you know, read about trauma and early childhood and stuff like that. And like, and I don't feel guilty about this because I didn't know at the time, but I think that my like vibe about like, why can't I feed my baby and come on eat and we've got to get 60 mLs in and we've got to get this done and we've got to get this done by 1115. He picked up my vibe. Do you know what I mean? Like he picked up my vibe. Like he picked up that I was like so stressed and tense and like, again, I can't go back and do it over again, but like, and and it probably wouldn't have affected the outcome. Like he really needed, he had physical issues that like, but like, I was just so like frustrated. And if I could go back in time and tell the NICU mom that I was in, like, don't obsess over this. Like, go to a yoga class. Like, honestly, I would have been better off if I had like taken a yoga class and centered myself and then came to the NICU. So that, that I'm not a big about giving advice, but that might be advice. Like I would say if you're in level two and you are feeling this like grind, don't go to NICU, take a yoga class and come back. Like, you know, because that's what was happening. I was in this really tough situation. And then simultaneously he was being a gavaged. I love that word. He was being gavaged. <laughs> explain what gavage is. I'll let you explain gavage. Okay. So for almost every baby in the NICU, not quite, but almost every baby in the NICU, um, at some point in time needs some help with feeding. And so there's a little tube, it's called a gavage tube, that goes in the, either the nose or the or the mouth. Uh, and that's kind of NICU dependent and baby dependent. Um, 
So it goes in the nose, down the esophagus, so down the swallowing tube and into the stomach. And then you can give all of the milk or the formula through that gavage tube. And it doesn't interfere with them eating. So baby can have this gavage tube that's in, that's sitting there, and they can still work on breastfeeding and bottle feeding without it really bothering the baby. Yes, yes. And that that's what Tim had. And like, it was really weird because like we would... Um... I'd have to look at like my little journal, but like we would feed him as best we could. And then he'd have like a planned gavage and then, you know, and then wean off the gavage as he increased his, his volume and, and frequency. And I remember being so frustrated with the feeding that I was like, F it, just gavage him. And Jamie, nurse Jamie, she was like, no, no, no you cannot give up so easily. Like we've got this, like you can do this, Katie. Like you have to have some faith in him and yourself. And I was like, I needed that. Like I, I, I needed her to, to push me a little bit, like just like him, like he needed to be pushed. So did I. And I remember also like, as I'm having this moment, like I, I was like, I had this like, okay, I, I could do this, but wow. You know, I never was a real science person. I'm like, science has kept my baby alive. Like, thank God for this. Like, I mean, really, literally, like this, thank God. Like, thank God we have these tools that can keep him nourished and fed as he's working on this. And so it was never lost on me that I am so glad I had a baby born in 2015 with this situation, right? Because this is not always the case. So um, I had this, like, again, all these mixed feelings, like, oh, frustration, I'm angry, I'm impatient, but I'm also very I, full of gratitude. I was very grateful for Jamie, and I was very grateful that we had the technology and, and the medicine that allows for him to be nourished. So that was a very big theme of that stage of NICU is nourishment. So, like, how is my baby being nourished, and um, how a lack of nourishment for myself. And I realized that now I, I did not understand that at the time. And I wasn't really going to therapy or anything like that. They had um, wonderful counselors at the hospital. I probably should have seen them more like just to get a little bit of help, but I did the best I could with what I had. Um, I went to therapy after for P PTSD um, and I still go it, for other stuff too now, but um it's real. It's, it's real. And I think a lot of moms should not feel any shame in that and, and get help if you need it. Because I felt it like when Tim was 18 months, like had trouble sleeping, had trouble, um, it just anxiety, like constant anxiety. I just felt like I was crawling out of my skin and it was just an awful feeling. And I always felt like I needed to be busy and that's a sign of anxiety. Um, and so, yeah, kind of going back to NICU, I feel like that's when it sort of started. Um, I, I mean, it started the whole time because I feel like stress and trauma and anxiety, it just kind of settles within your nervous system and, and things like that. So you have to figure out ways to calm down your nervous system. So, you know, things like that. So it, if I could go back in time, I probably would have done some of those breathing exercises, meditations, yoga to just sort of calm myself down. And I think that would be really helpful for baby too. But again, I mean, Tim, Tim is who he is anyway. I can't always just think that I'm like, you know, 
I influence him, but he's his own person, even as a baby. So, so yeah, that was, that was level two. And, and Jamie, nurse Jamie pushed us in a good way. Like you can do this. And, um, eventually he started increasing the frequency and the volume. And then you guys shocked us with the news. Like you're going home. It does tend to be a shock. There's It was a shock. Because it, the requirement is that you have to eat everything for 48 hours once once you, everything else that needs to be done is, is accomplished. So we were just waiting on feeds. So, you know, 48 to 72 hours and gaining weight. And so they don't eat everything. They don't eat everything. And then I come in today. Well, he ate everything yesterday. So he could go home tomorrow, right? So it's kind of like, no, 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 tomorrow. Um, and, and I think that that's a very common theme for a lot of parents is that their kid just kind of will take off and that that discharge that you've been waiting for and anticipating that seems so far away that you really really want all of a sudden sneaks up on you because babies do what babies do and I don't have any control over when he's going to eat but when he eats then I can you know affectionately kick you out exactly yeah everything was on tim time and it was a really weird um situation right like you were saying like you dream of the discharge you want to go home but then all of a sudden it's happening and for me i don't know if other people felt this i was terrified to go home terrified terrified how am i going to do this alone right now i have world-class brilliant people popping in Every 20 minutes to see how we're doing, checking in on us. If there's any abnormality, you guys are on it. The nurses are there. Like, I had a very positive hospital experience. Very positive. I mean, 10 out of 10. I took part of my maternity leave, only a month. I went back to work, and then I saved my maternity leave for when he was home. So, I was, I got the voicemail, and shock, disbelief, all these things that we were talking about. And like I had mentioned, we didn't have any stuff. So we went out to Target and bought hundreds of dollars worth of stuff and purchased our Amazon, you know, clicked spend on our Amazon cart and all that sort of stuff. And then what was really cool was that you guys have like that, like, I call it playing house. So it's like that. We the got rooming in room. <laughs> yeah, we got to play house. <laughs> awesome. So, we got to play house. So um, like it's like a little hotel room at the end of the floor of the NICU floor to practice, to simulate what it's like to go home. It was like training wheels, right? So it's like, okay, you're going to have to ride a bike. Here's riding a bike with training wheels. And you're going to, they're sort of going to be taken off a little bit, you know? And so then it built that confidence for us to go home. And it's really weird, Anna, because like I pictured... I don't know when, like back in, like I found out the news about Tim's own fallacy in uh, September 4th. And if you had asked me on September like 10th, what I thought it would be like when we left NICU, I would have been like, we're going to have a parade. We're going to have everyone we know. I'm from a big Irish Catholic family. Everyone's going to be there. I wanted the complete opposite. Interesting. Yep, just the three of us, Chris, me, and Tim. I didn't want any fanfare. I was exhausted. Chris was exhausted. The baby is still exhausted. You know, he's been fighting 
to all through all these surgeries and he just went through let me see when he was in NICU he had three surgeries Tim had three surgeries this baby needed to chill out and rest and I wanted that time to be a little family I wanted that maternity leave I wanted that peacefulness I loved being in the hospital and I loved having people around but I also but I also didn't right because you're always interrupted and there's always someone coming in so you really don't have those moments those little moments and I wanted all that and some family members really struggled with that they were very upset why am I not invited this is a big day he's finally coming home and I understand where they're coming from I truly do because when you don't have a NICU baby that's what you do. You get to meet the baby. And, you know, it happens slowly and quietly and things like that. Or maybe it doesn't. It depends on what your family is like, what your friends are like. But, like, I always thought that's how it would be, really, like a party environment. But I did not want that at all. And and part of it, again, it goes back to at the time I wasn't able to describe it, but my nervous system, I needed rest. I needed, I needed to go home and have it quiet. So it was really interesting. So it took us a while before we allowed visitors in the home and guests. Um, and we slowly phased that in. Again, it hurt people's feelings, but I stand by that. And I stand by that for any parent. If you have a gut feeling, you need to trust that. Like you need to trust how you feel because your journey with your baby is yours, right? And I think that when you're a NICU and many parts of the birth and the subsequent stuff afterwards is like not quote, natural, you begin to doubt your intuition because you're like, I don't know what's up from down. Like I don't, but you have to, you have to trust that inner voice in you and like that feeling. And I knew I needed just my boys with me. I just needed the three of us. I needed it quiet. I needed it peaceful. I didn't want to party. And um, I think that's, that's fantastic did. that you yeah. were able to listen to that inside voice and say, I know this is what I thought I wanted, but in actuality, this is what my mind and my body is telling me I need now. I always tell parents, feel free to blame it on that mean redheaded doctor in Denver who said, you cannot have people over to your house for two weeks. Yeah, Because I think, I mean, when we had our oldest daughter, it was. Um, I just wanted my husband and I. Um, literally, it was my two best friends that came to the hospital um, to visit uh, for literally maybe an hour. Otherwise, it was just us. It was over Thanksgiving. Nobody else was allowed to come. And it's not even so much that they weren't allowed to come, but we didn't extend an invitation Yeah, because we wanted it to just... I wanted it to just be my husband and I and and the baby. That was so, I, I needed that time for us to create our new family. And, yep. and then in a couple of weeks, more people started coming over and, um, and, and we opened it back up. And for me, that was exactly what I needed. For other people, they, they really need people to come in right away and they want yep. their entire extended family there they need something different than what I needed and neither one is good or bad or right or wrong or better or worse 
But it is about listening to yourself and listening to your body and listening to your mind and saying, this is what I think I need right now. And and don't apologize for it. And I'm always, y'all, I'm always willing to be the person that you blame it on. I listened to this Mighty Littles podcast. That doctor told me not to have anybody come over for two weeks, so I'm not doing it. If you need an excuse to not have people inundating you with whatever, uh, I, you, I'm i always happy to take that blame for other people. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's important because it, there's a lot um, – people that don't go through NICU – they don't understand how fragile these babies are. Our babies are, they're not, they're not these robust big babies. I mean, no matter what the size is, but it's just different. And I think a lot of people forget that NICU is ICU. These babies were in critical care. Like if you took an adult who just had a heart attack would you be having a party at the house afterwards? Most likely not. Like, most likely not. So, like, it's the same thing. And it was really hard, and I felt frustrated having to explain myself. But it goes back to that communication plan thing that I talked about, like, a million years ago. Like, like you have to have your story straight. And you got to stick by it, and that's it. Like, that's how it is. And so, yeah, it was really weird. And, you know, I really struggled with – um like there was an next phase of it as I adapted to being at home where um, some of those baby things or things that people complained about, like it felt really weird to me because I was like, oh, you're up all night. That's awesome because that's what babies are supposed to do. Right. Like, so I had these feelings or every time Tim did a poop because, you know, gastro kids that poop is like, a celebration. It's a big, big, big deal. I always joke around that poor whoever marries Tim, and I'm not even going to be a harpy mother-in-law. Like I'll, I, I have boys. I'm going to let them be, but I'm going to be like, did he poop? Like, <laughs> could you just tell me? Did you make sure he pooped in the last 24 hours? Like, because now he knows how to wipe himself. So I'm like, oh my god, I don't even know if he pooped. Like, you know, it's just crazy because I mean, I am obsessed with Tim's poop. Like, gastro moms get it. Like anyone that has an omphalocele baby or gastroschisis, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So like, I'm obsessed with poop. So all of these things, like I, I felt like I was, I don't know, it felt weird. Like I felt gratitude because I was taking like like I really had joyful moments of these small things that annoy other moms, but then it would get me mad. I felt this like superiority to other moms because it was like, Oh, you're so ungrateful. Like you have a healthy baby. Like you're so lucky that breastfeeding hurts. Like I would give anything to have breastfeeding hurt. Like, you know what I mean? And I'll tell you, Anna, I have to be honest. It took me until Tim was two and a half until I got kind of that chip off my shoulder two and a half. And I, and I know there's other moms that are still have that anger. Like, and I, I'm not judging. I, I just know it, it, it does not go away overnight. Right. But I think it's, it's real, right? It's I think real. it's, it's the same for, um, it, I mean, it's a little bit different, but for moms who go through infertility treatments, there's this little bit of, I waited and worked so hard for this. Why, be grateful. I'm grateful for all of these little pains and hardships. You should be too. But the reality is, 
it's it's they're not mutually exclusive just because you went through IVF doesn't mean you don't need a break and just because you have a baby in the NICU doesn't mean that you can't be grateful everybody has all these feelings and they're and they're all real and we should be talking about them because not talking about them sets moms up for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety and PTSD and and all those kind of things so behavior is just it's a form of communication like behavior is a form of communication what's underneath is the important stuff. And I think that when you go through an experience like infertility or NICU, and it was interesting because PJ, I didn't do IVF, but um, there was, uh, I don't, what, what's like the step down from infertility, but that are like from IVF. That's what I did. The, IUI? The, IUI, yeah. Yeah. So that's like, um, in utero insemination. Yes. Oh, although no. So we did that once and I didn't get pregnant. It was um, doing the... Um, so you just did the stimulation, the meds? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I got pregnant that way, but there was a big frustration because, you know, Tim, Tim's, I, I sort of expected it, right? Tim finally got healthy, like it's time, you know, and that's not how it works. And so it's really interesting because I think that it is really important. And that's why the work that you're doing is so important because it opens up this conversation that not everyone has this perfect pregnancy, or it also opens up as, okay, you might've had a perfect pregnancy, but now your child has ADHD, you know, when he's eight and can't sit still in the classroom. And you know what? That sucks because it's so hard. And like, you might have a friend who's child doesn't have that issue and you're like how I had a perfect pregnancy I had everything so we've all got stuff but if we can get the underlying feelings out that's the important thing because our stuff is all going to be different right right like no the stuff is always different but it's always different yeah but but the emotion Underneath underneath it can be very very similar yeah, like it's grief. So so I dealt with that. That took a long time. That took a long time. And, and you know, I remember um, because Tim, the, the other piece of it, and this is not a path I necessarily, I didn't walk, but, and, and you can decide if you want to edit this because it's a little heavy, but like, you know, um, I didn't know if we'd be walking the special needs path, like with developmental um, delays and, and things like that. And I was in that community because he was delayed on everything. Like he didn't walk till like he was 17 months, you know? And, and that's when like at that 18 month mark where, you know, you have to kind of see what's going on. It, it might not mean anything, but you just have to, you have to probe a little more. Whereas like PJ started work walking at 11 months. It wasn't even a thing. Like, he just walked. I, I wasn't even aware of developmental milestones where I was like obsessed with them for Tim because he was monitored so closely and he had so many complications after we left NICU. So I was in of a community where the kids were really struggling and Tim started thriving when he turned two. Um, and then I wasn't a part of that community. So then I'm in with the regular moms and I had literally never been on a play date. Like ever. I, I, You're now the it, second mom to say that in a, or not say exactly that same thing, but to, to comment about leaving the NICU with a baby and not 
going on play dates or not being invited to play dates or not being included in play dates or excluding yourself from play dates mm-hmm. because of the experience that happened in the NICU. Yep. Yep. And I'd have to say mine was more the latter. Like I didn't want to be around other moms. Like I couldn't, I, the moms that I had, like Amanda, uh, Amanda, my friend, yeah. Amanda, um, Oh my God, we did play dates and right. my friend Lindsay, we were NICU moms and that's all I could handle. Like I needed my sisters. Like I needed that, but I could not go beyond that. I just couldn't. And it, it, but then also Tim was struggling with things. Um, so, and you know, we had physical therapy and occupational therapy and feeding therapy and like every therapy you could imagine. It was really hard. Like it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for a NICU parent. And because again, I have had a healthy child. You don't do any of that stuff when they're six months old. You're going to the library. It's not even a big deal. You're not thinking about germs. You're you're not even thinking about the things that NICU parents are thinking about. So um, that that was a really tough. So when Tim turned two, I had to sort of switch communities, and that was a real hard thing for me. I really really struggled, and um, you know. It's hard because I don't want something to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for Tim. I'm like constantly like, is everything okay? Like he's in pre-K. Like I'm asking the teacher, is everything okay? Like, is it, you know, I'm always asking. And she said, Katie, he's, he's great. He's a five-year-old, you know? And, and, um, with PJ, I don't do that. And, um, part of it is their temperaments and part of it but I think when you have a NICU baby that doesn't go away like there's just something there that I don't like the word worry but I do I I I worry I worry I just worry um I worry about things like like Tim plays hockey (laughs) and I called Dr. Rothenberg I said can he play hockey he said, yeah, you can play hockey. I said, that's not what I wanted to hear, by the way. You could have told them he can't play hockey. And then it wouldn't be my fault because hockey is the most expensive and time-consuming sport on the planet. And he is obsessed. He is obsessed with hockey. And so um, he loves hockey and it feeds into his intensity. It feeds into his temperament. It feeds into that like very competitive and intense sort of thing that got him out of NICU. But there's also pieces to it because of the medical trauma. We, we've pieced this together. Tim has a play therapist and occupational therapy still. Because what we have observed is two things. One is that some of his behavior um, isn't quite developmentally appropriate. So like he had a problem with hitting when he was two. And I remember being like, reaching out to a lot of people like he hits and what's going on here and people like oh he's two that's how it is and I'm like no there's something mm, something's not right about it and then like kind of he's gotten older and he's a very bright boy so he keeps up like he's in pre-k so you know take it with a grain of salt but like academically he keeps up and he has friends and peers and stuff like that but he always wants to play rough oh Katie he's just a boy no, it's something more because PJ is a boy and he's big, but PJ has like a limit, like is a limit. And so what our, our new team in Boston has picked up and, and I would love to see more research and maybe this could be a future podcast is sort of, and this isn't a bad thing. It's awareness. Knowledge is power. How medical trauma 
affects the nervous system so that these kids sort of like they 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 do have some anxious behaviors that might be from what they endured and one thing that Tim's play therapist has a hypothesis and I think it makes a lot of sense is that sometimes he doesn't have a good sense of like um personal space like the space bubble they call it in his yeah. class and she said think Katie think about it the first two years of his life people were literally inside his body he was poked and prodded and everyone was in his space he doesn't have that natural feeling of where space is because yeah where does my space end and your space begins it's just a continuum yeah because everyone violated his space right and so like the whole point of it is like that kind of makes me sad like that stinks like that he's five and that stinks but we have the resources that we can help him so that he can rewire his brain so that he just knows a little bit better. And that's what occupational therapy does. And that's why he loves, this gets back to the hockey thing. This is why he loves hockey. He loves that feeling of gliding and crashing. And that we, we wonder, again, our team in Boston is new with us, but we think that that might be because of his, his medical trauma. And you know what? That's great. He plays hockey. He, he has an outlet for it. So I, I hope there's more research and studies on this because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, but he's a great kid. So he he started thriving when he was two. Two. I mean, it, it just all of a sudden. But what was tough about that was like um, socially, like when we go kind of going back to the hitting thing, he missed a whole year of that. Right. Like he missed because he was in and out of the hospital, you know, all this sort of stuff. And we had to keep him kind of. A, a little bit sheltered because of germs, you know, he had a weaker immune system and stuff like that. So I, I did ask the teacher in nursery school and in pre-K, do you think he needs a year back? Like, even though he's a January baby, because he did miss that because I see it with PJ, like that curiosity, like PJ explores the world. Like he doesn't have any real fear. Tim, his world felt scary. He didn't, he wasn't able, he was in the hospital, you know, when he was six months old, nine months old, he couldn't like explore a room or anything because he was a sick baby. Like he, he, he missed out on that discovery period of being like an infant toddler. So I would ask the teachers, do you think he needs a year back? Just sort of, cause he missed that. And they were like, no, I don't think so. And I, th- I love the teachers and I, I don't, I, and I, and I feel it intuitively too. Like Tim should continue with the class that he's in and things like that. But it is very interesting because he did miss that, like just being a baby, like right. it got interrupted. It got very interrupted because we had repeat um, trips to the hospital. So he, he, after NICU, you know, he had some issues that, that came up and, um, he had a very, I guess that's the right word to put it, is interrupted. Yeah. So, you know, you're five years out. Um, in reflecting on this journey through the NICU, what do you think was your absolute favorite moment, either while you were in the NICU or right after you went home? Sure, I do remember that. So, um, 
remember, I'm from Boston, right? And I'm living in Denver. And the Patriots are in the Super Bowl the year that Tim is born. <laughs> so everyone was like, it was a good little like, you know, it, it, it added some levity, right? Like to, to the whole situation, like, oh God, who's going to be stuck with the Pats fans? Because like, I didn't like decorate Tim's room because someone gave me guidance, like don't get too comfortable. Like, you know, you, you're moving on. And, but I'd put a few Patriots things up and it like always like made laughs, like, oh great. Some like, some like jerk Bostonian, blah, blah, blah. So it was really funny. And then like, oh, and then when, um, when, uh, Tim, after he had the, what's it called? The closure surgery. Did you remember what his tummy looked like? It was pretty, it, it was like intense, right? Yeah. So he was puckered. His skin was stretched so tight. It was puckered like a football and it had the big sutures. Yeah, he had retention and sutures. They, I mean, it was like intense, right? And I'm like, oh my God, he looks like football. And like, everyone was like, oh yeah, well, don't worry. It'll be like Tom Brady with deflate gate, you know, that big controversy. <laughs> like, so what stuff like that? Like it was like, that made things feel a little more normal. Like here we are in this intense environment, but they're like making jokes. I'm like, okay, that's a good sign. That's good. So one day I go in Super Bowl Sunday and I get in there and the nurse is like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I am so glad you're my patients for the day. This is Katie. She goes, I'm from Foxborough and that's where Gillette Stadium is. That's where the Pats play. I'm like, stop. Like, no way. This is so awesome. Like, I, God brought you into my life. This is so important. And so we just started talking and connecting and I like it brought such, it felt like a God wink, you know, that little saying like, Katie, everything is okay. And like, when you're going through trauma, you want familiar things like you want that familiarity and that in that moment I just felt so comfortable and calm and familiar and that was a really awesome moment and then they won later on in the day so that made me very happy <laughs> so that was my favorite Nick you day oh that's awesome that's a good story the one question that we haven't talked about is now that you are five years out and you've really done a nice job of kind of working through your NICU journey and reflecting on your NICU journey and you are currently writing a book, do you want to tell us a little bit about your book and your memoir and possibly read us any passages? Okay, let me open up my laptop. So yes, Anna, I am... Um in the middle of publishing it, I'm, I'm working on that, trying to um, submit for a publisher, uh, for an agent and to a publisher. And my book uh, memoir is called Infinite Miracles, Memoir of a NICU Mom. And it's my journey of learning about um, the devastating fetal diagnosis of the umphalocele, navigating this difficult pregnancy, persevering through NICU, enduring a difficult first year in and out of the hospital, and miraculously thriving into toddlerhood and, quote, normal parenthood. So it's a story about a unique entree into parenthood, showing how we coped with different difficult circumstances and intense emotions. Um, and it just really takes us through our journey and um, a lot of the, the feelings that we went through um, during all of this, most of which I've talked about. So... I wanted to share with you something a little bit different. 
So I'd like to give you an excerpt from chapter two, and um, the chapter is called Speaking Words of Wisdom. So this is, where does it pick up? Um, it picks up after we heard that news about the Omphalocele, um, going through the process of deciding um, about the amnio. So it was a time where the shock was very real. So I start, I know I knew I needed to go back to work at my place of employment, an educational publishing company. My manager gave me the option to take time off, but if I were home alone while the rest of the world carried on, I knew I would go rogue with my thoughts. It brought up a big question that traumatized people carry around every day. How do I handle the outside, quote, normal world? Will I stay quiet about my troubles? Should I create a communication plan to quickly describe my difficult experience as briefly as an elevator pitch? This is the quandary that continues for me and shared by many who are going through a traumatic experience. The, ev the evolving issue of what to tell people, what not to tell people, and how to communicate or not communicate on social media. For many, and for me, it felt like every word that was said or written must be planned. And on top of dealing with grief and the challenge of communicating the trauma, I also had to absorb the response of the recipient. People recognize this journey in mine. For me, I opted for creating some talking points for friends, work colleagues, and even strangers about what I was going through. After all, I was visibly pregnant. I wanted to have some answers prepared with people, especially those close to me, ask questions. But it wasn't as simple as just figuring out how to speak to those around me. I also had to navigate how to deal with what they said to me. This shows how traumatized people often interpret well wishes. I was completely blindsided by how often people with good intentions said something completely unhelpful and off-putting to me. <laughs> I've summarized these well-wishers into three categories, optimism bullies, over-empathizers, and cliche-sayers. Optimism bullies try to tell you that everything will be okay, even when it is obvious that it is not, and they fixate on silver linings where there aren't any. An overempathizer is similar to the optimism bully, but they just want to one-up your story or compare their experience to that of someone else they know. Usually, the comparison is way off and makes for an awkward conversation. Lastly, the cliché-sayer relies on trite platitudes to navigate a conversation with someone in a difficult situation. I lost track of the number of times someone said to me, God only gives you what you can handle. I lost my mind overhearing that stupid sentence. Did God look through all the list of pregnant women and their partners and say, Ah, oh, look, there's Katie and Chris. They're pretty tough and they can handle a lot of crap. And it might be a good lesson in empathy and compassion for them. So yeah, let me give them a baby with a serious birth de defect because they can handle it. Kara and Josh, on the other hand, would never be able to handle a, having a child with a birth defect. No, God doesn't work that way. And that's why those trait platitudes are so damaging and dismissive. Oh, I think that's just fantastic. I love the description of the three people. And I, I, I'll be honest, I, it's not something that I have generally thought about how when you give people news about this is what's going on with my baby or my baby's in the NICU, that they will say something back to you. Um, 
I've thought about it on my end, right? When I give parents news, what they are going to say back to me, and then how I can then engage in a conversation with them. Because as you're delivering bad news, there's usually certain there's certain themes that come back from from parents as well. And so I've thought about it in my world, but I I'll be totally honest, I've never thought about it from a mom standpoint when you tell people that your baby has an umphalocele that you have to deal with what they say back to you. I think that's one of the best descriptions that I've ever heard. Thank you. And you know, an, another friend told me about she's a bereaved mother. And she had said that to me. She said, the hardest part is not giving the elevator pitch. It's what do people say back? And you are stuck with that responsibility. You're stuck. So they say something back to you that could knock the wind out of you. And there's nothing you can do. You can't control what other people say. So that that's what I think. And it is. It's so hard because people say such stupid shit and they don't mean it like that that's the right whole piece. they're like they they're very well intentioned they're they're trying yep. to empathize with you they are trying to connect with you they are trying yep. to make what is an uncomfortable situation feel a little bit better but that's just the thing you can't make all uncomfortable situations feel better. You just have to sit in it and be with the person. You can't, of, of all of them, it's the trite platitudes that would um, drive me the most crazy. Use this like sort of like everything happens for a reason sort of thing. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't. Bad it things just happen. Bad things happen. They don't happen I for a reason. They just happen. They just happen. And we live in a culture that wants answers. Like if A happened, then B must have happened. Or we have to blame something. But sometimes things happen. And um, one way that that was driven home to me was when Tim, again, we'll talk about this in the, the future podcast, but when when Tim was very sick with the bowel obstruction, it was bad. Uh, it got bad fast. And my dad got on the line and he goes, I don't have the words to comfort you. I don't know why things happen. That's why being human, it, it doesn't make any sense sometimes. Like, and it was the smartest and the wisest thing I've ever heard, right? Like that not everything has an answer. Like there's no, there's no, and I think we just live in this world that doesn't experience grief or doesn't want grief. It doesn't want pain. And so give a pill or something, anything, exercise, drink, do anything to avoid uncomfortable feelings. And what like you taught me, that's actually the book. It said like, I will sit and listen to you. I will be uncomfortable with you in that moment. And those are, it's just, it's so important because I think right now, and even even right after NICU and, and there are some friends that I wish I could go back in time and kind of unsay what I said, I, I meant it like I was a little bit of an optimism bully. And now I wish I could go back. And, and a lot of times I find myself just like saying like, that stinks. Yeah. You know, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That stinks. That's really hard. Yeah. And that, that's it. That's all there is. 
Part of the reason people say things, part of the reason why they give the trite platitudes and the over-empathizers and the, the optimism bully, I think the reason that people fall into those categories is because having a sick child and having a sick newborn and having a really at-risk pregnancy is so not the norm in this country. People get pregnant and go through their nine months blissfully ignorant. They have their gender reveal party after their perfect ultrasound. They go in and they have their birth and they come home. And the idea that it doesn't go that way is so foreign to current society because most of the time it does go really well. And so they fall into those categories because they're just globally uncomfortable. And it's so foreign that they don't, that they have to fall back on things that are familiar that you use in other circumstances because this is so foreign. And really all people need to do is sit and be present and say, I'm sorry and listen. We live in a society where you have YouTube and you have Netflix and you always have something. There's podcasts. There's there's always something that can be playing in your ear. And silence can be uncomfortable for a lot of people. But in a lot of these situations where people are really grieving, whether it's the loss of a parent or a really sick baby or devastating news from a pregnancy or a divorce or bankruptcy. I mean, I I don't you can think of all sorts of different um, traumas and and grief that people are going through. Sometimes it's best to just sit and be quiet. And I think that's really hard to do. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think the listeners are going to just love hearing your story. And you're you're far enough out that you have a different perspective than some of the previous podcasts that have been on who are still kind of really in the thick of it with two-year-olds and nine-month-olds. So I just really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your story and and sharing your book. Thank you, Anna. It was a pleasure doing the podcast and anything for you, Anna. I just adore you. So thank you for doing this. Thank for oh, thank you for your blogs and your social media and the podcast. You're amazing. So thank you. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.